0: Welcome to Tech Now with Tom Lyon, the podcast where host Tom Lyon talks with industry leaders about upcoming technology. Now here's Tom.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. That's me. Our guest today is Ray Rothrock, who's had a very distinguished career as a venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley. Uh, got a real job, though, as CEO of Red Seal. Um and uh, has become quite the expert in cybersecurity. Also, he was uh, the first and at this point longest investor in Checkpoint Software, which is one of the original internet security companies. Um, and Ray, Ray and I met when he worked at Sun. He was actually hired in, in there by my wife. So we have lots of touch points, including uh, kids in the same school, et cetera, et cetera. So, Welcome, Ray. How are you today?
0: I'm great, Tom. Thanks. It's uh, we do have a lot of touch points if you go that far back. Yeah, that's good. Yeah.
1: Even Texas, right? So you're yeah.
0: It's a- right. I'm from Fort Worth. You're from El Paso. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: You're an Aggie. Yeah. Well, you could have been. I could have been, but I escaped earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we're going to talk some about security and sure. Uh, you've got a book out called Digital Resilience, correct? Right? Um, but what I'm really interested in talking about is nuclear energy. Good, because that's your—that's where you started, right?
0: Yeah, that's where my real soul is, actually. Uh, so I got started in nuclear energy when I was 14 years old. I got the atomic energy merit badge uh, for my Eagle. Very cool. And, uh, that was fun. It was. Uh, uh, there was a bunch of us got it at the time, but uh, we did some cool experiments with radioactivity. You know, put radioactivity liquids in plants and all kinds of stuff and made x-rays it was i learned a lot but i got hooked just i was hooked and then uh i subsequently went to texas a&m where i got my bachelor's degree in nuclear energy and then mit first my graduate work and then into the industry where i was a nuclear safety engineer at a power plant for a couple of three years and then into the fuel cycle so i it's a big deal and then this thing called a computer apple computer came along That kind of Drew me away from that kind of engineering into other kinds.
1: So yeah, we were just chatting about how we were both kids when ready kilowatt was pushing <laughs> yeah. electric energy and the atom was your friendly friend that was going to solve all problems. Yeah. So things haven't quite turned out that way, but it's it's still interesting stuff going on.
0: Yeah, a lot. I mean, it it it's a it's a very big business actually. I mean, there are over 450 reactors in the world. There's about 99 in the U.S. that are still operating. Uh, it's not a trivial global impact at all. And in fact, as every plant that stops functioning, the the counter effect of climate impact increases and accelerates. So it's a, you know, there are a lot of people who want to shut them down, but uh, it's, those are the same people who want the climate to get fixed as well. So they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And technology's changed a lot since I was a young engineer uh, operating plants, uh, so it's a, it's a, it's different and better and hopefully cheaper if we can just build a few and give it a shot. So,
1: yeah, I mean, people have a irrational fear of a lot of this stuff, but uh, yeah, there's yeah. definitely some problems still to be solved.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, radi- radiation is the boogeyman at some level, and uh, it's too bad we we actually know more about the impact of radiation on humans than we know how aspirin makes our headaches go away, it turns out, but that doesn't seem to matter much, so.
1: I remember when I was first uh, learning about these huge hyperscale data centers, you know, they're building up to take up to like 200 megawatts each and, and yet at the same time, a typical nuclear reactor is only two gigawatts, right? <laughs> So it doesn't take very many of these monster data centers to require a whole lot of new energy. So uh, something's got to give
0: yeah, some somebody said uh, uh, I helped. One of the other things I did, um, it, so I had a nice venture career, and then I went into uh, tried to retire, but couldn't. But in that short short window there, I did a movie called Pandora's Promise, and it's uh, you can get it on Netflix now. Download it, but it went around the world. I went around with it. We showed it to two million people. But one of the things that was. And the story, the Pandora's promise. five people, five notable environmentalists who had flipped a bit from being anti-nuclear to pro-nuclear. We captured their stories and addressed each of the boogeymen, the radiation, the safety, the, all that stuff. And one of them in there was every time you do a search on Google, you activate about a refrigerator's worth of electricity to get that answer to your screen when you fire up the network and the computers and spin the disk and all the things that go on. Right. So yeah. it's not a trivial, uh, you, Tom, are just making it you know more demand for electricity with all your work at DriveScale.
1: Yeah. And uh, I like to talk about what the user sees as being the tip of the iceberg, right? When, when you do a search, you get the answer, right? But think about how much energy went into yes. preparing for the answer, think about how much energy goes into the background processing afterwards. Like if you order something, holy cow, it triggers hundreds of servers and yeah. companies and it's out of control. Yeah.
0: So electricity is essential to our data world, our yeah. digital world, and we need more electricity, we need cleaner electricity. Yeah. So I've, I'm back in the game, if you will. I've made an inve- two investments in nuclear energy, on one with my firm, Venrock, and then one on my own. And I today, because of that activity and doing Pandora's Promise and a few other things, uh, the Department of Energy has me on two of their advisory boards. Uh, One's called GAIN for – it's the advancement of – I'm sorry. It's uh, the gateway to advanced innovation in nuclear energy. And that's fun because it's a national lab-based project. So I sit on a board with the lab directors, Oak Ridge, Idaho, Argonne. I never thought I would ever qualify for such a thing, but because I've got the finance part of it. And then the other is the assistant secretary of nuclear energy uh, has an advisory board, and I'm on that. With uh, about 30 other people, and that's these are fun. These are very, you know, that's a cut of, that's a slice of life you just don't get in the Silicon Valley or in Fort Worth, Texas. It's a very different. If people come from all around the world for these meetings twice a year, and they It's very exciting what we talk about, what we hope for, and yeah. dream and plan. But it's it's been fun to get back into it, um, and to make our case for advanced nuclear energy, not the traditional stuff you see in movies and whatever, but for new things. And uh, it's been a, a labor of love and a passion. There's a group of us out there that uh, are advocating, and it get, the group gets bigger. It's We're kind of like a snowball rolling down the hill. It just collects, collects, and collects.
1: Well, one of your investments, I think, is Tri Alpha Energy. Right. Yeah. They're trying a new approach to fusion, which I think is very yeah. cool.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So, you know, fusion's that technology that's always 50 years away. And Tri Alpha Energy. So Tri Alpha Energy is located in Irvine, California, down south. Uh, It was uh, founded by uh, Glenn Seaborg, the Nobel laureate and chancellor of Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and the whole California systems. And he has an element named after him, right? Yeah, he does. Seaborgium, right, exactly. He was a very exclusive club. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty exclusive. His Nobel was for uh, plutonium. He's a guy that – he was a chemist, not a physicist. He was a chemist. Anyway, he, uh, back in 98, uh, gave a talk at the Bohemian Club about how he thought all these tokamak – which was the the architecture of the the desired architecture that most nations were pursuing for fusion would fail. And when a guy like Seaborg says that isn't going to work, the next question is, well, Dr. Seaborg, what will work? And he says, there's this guy down south at University of California Irvine, he's got this other approach that might work. And then he explained it. And that and a few people from the Bohemian Club put in a few million dollars. They spun it out of UC Irvine and started this company. And they built a couple of machines. I can explain what the machine does in a minute. built a couple of machines and actually got the second machine to work better than they expected. And it was on that basis that I convinced my partners and my limited partners to invest uh, money and many other people, NEA uh, and other firms here in the Valley, uh, came into Goldman Sachs, uh, all kinds of folks into it. And uh, so if I so we built that machine. So on that basis, we built the next machine. It worked. Now we're, we built the fourth machine, and it worked. And now we're building the fifth machine as we speak, and we're in the shakedown of it right now. And uh, you need but three-
1: The question is, is it still 50 years away?
0: <laughs> no, no, I think it's about 10 years away. Um, because the machine after this will actually be break even. There are, there are two things you need for fusion. You need uh, to hold the plasma, the stuff that's going to fuse for, you got to control it and manage it. And then you have to heat it up. And we, the, the third machine proved that we could hold it and drive it and control it indefinitely. And the yeah. machine we're doing now is raising the energy level, and if the physics that we've figured out continues to hold, then we will have both containment and temperature. And then the next machine will be one where it all comes together, and it works. Now, Mother Nature always fools us, and there's always things. Uh, but the good news is Google is helping us with a lot of their machine learning capability. That's a very fun dimension of this project. Oh, that's and, so- uh,
1: to figure out the plasma containment? I think I read
0: Well, you probably read about it. Um, on every experiment, there are about 6,000 knobs on the machine. Uh, and we have a team of people. And when you shoot, when you do a shot, it's called, last about 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds. You do a shot, you collect all this data, and then you got to analyze it. And we used to have people... That would in real time analyze as much as we could maybe three or four dozen of these knobs now we analyze six thousand knobs at a time the machine learning tells us which one matters then we tweak those and our method of learning is probably tripled from when we did it the old-fashioned way and we used to when we were exploring what we call regions of physics temperature and time kind of things uh, we would have to explore all the edges the boundaries that's the way you do science but with machine learning, we can predict what the boundary is in one corner and what the boundary is in another corner, and we don't have to go there. Oh. And occasionally we still do just to say, well, the machine learning thinks it's going to be 25, and we'll go there, and sure enough, it's 25, and we'll say good. So our confidence that our physics is good and that the machine is doing what it's supposed to do is way up, and that's very exciting. We have all in the world today – there's been about probably I don't know 150,000 shots fired by all machines created by mankind in the last 60 years. TAE's done 100,000 of them. Wow! In the last 20 years. So yeah. So, so way, the
1: way back when I was at Princeton, uh, oh. Princeton has their plasma, phys- plasma physics lab, and they were yep. doing, their, doing their tokamak. And uh, I had a little helped on a little project down there, but I got I got to attend one of the shots. Did and- you? And they had a a three-story high flywheel uh, (laughs) storing up the energy for the sucker. And when they fired off the shot, you could hear the
0: thing slow down. It was just like, (laughs) ooh.
1: It was a scary amount of
0: energy. Yes. Yeah, we don't have a four-story flywheel, but we have four flywheels that are about as big as the room we're in, 10 by 10 by 20 or so. Uh, and you do hear them wind down, it's, um, yeah, you can't do it on the grid, you would bring down Irvine. Irvine would get a little brown out every time you hit the button. Okay. So, um, uh, But we've raised, so the other, so interesting to mention, so we've run about 100,000 shots, we've moved physics way forward. Uh, the other thing, we've raised about $600 million of private capital, no government funds, no, ta- no taxpayer dollars in this project ever anywhere. So uh, one of the, I think, an interesting thing is, you know, venture cap. So how does venture capital apply to science? At my firm, Benrock, we did a lot of science. We did a lot of life care science, biology, things like that. So one of the good things that VCs are good for, besides writing the check, is they keep. The company focused, and when you're doing science, sometimes scientists like to wander off and chase other things, just because they're curious. They're right. naturally curious people. Well, a lot, of, a lot of good science comes from that, but totally, absolutely. I'm not saying it's bad, yeah. but VCs keep them focused on the goal. Right. And so we have successfully, on a milestone basis, raised all this money. You know, year after year, we're always, we're constantly raising money. As a VC, I used to say, you're always raising money. It's just a matter of when you close closed the deal. So, so we raised all this money and we stayed on focus and it was so interesting that the National Academy of Sciences asked invited me to write a paper for their they have a thing called Issues in Climate. And so I wrote a paper it published in twenty sixteen. And I got invited to Washington and I addressed the National Academy of Engineering and Science, which was pretty cool. Uh, and believe you me, they were asking questions I was, you know, it was I, I did the best I could <laughs> But uh, those kind of – that's led to some interesting conversations along the way. So it's a fun project. It's still 10 years away, and we still need to raise another billion dollars. Uh, We're out with all our science, so the world's world's science critics are evaluating this. And, you know, know, one of the things – I don't know which famous scientist said it, but when you make incredible claims, you have to have incredible evidence. And so our story has been one of building incredible evidence validated by third parties so it's a big deal
1: well it's very cool it's such an area of passion for you
0: yeah it's fun it's fun
1: so maybe we should shift gears and talk some about red seal what what's red seal all about
0: yeah, Red Seal. Red Seal is a company I helped finance. Uh, it's first financing in 2004 when I was at Venrock. Red Seal's technology interprets a network, all its configuration information, and builds a software model of it. Much like a spreadsheet is full of formulas and gives you results and numbers and stuff, we build the same thing for a network. So every configuration file, every uh, you know, from to port and protocol in the network, we analyze and build a soft model. When you have a model, as you know, Tom, uh, in math, you can ask it questions, you can interrogate it, you can find problems, you can find things that are good and bad. And so over the last uh, four years since I've been CEO, we've we accelerated things. Not only do we create a model, but now we score it. We can judge whether or not you've done it right. We've built an automatic compliance and other things. And in the world... Uh, normally it's a joke, but normally when uh, when a VC when the VC that founded the company becomes a CEO, it's the end of the company. That's usually our job, right? We start them and end them sometimes, right. unfortunately. But in this case, when I joined, my goal was okay, time to deal with it. Um, the thing called Target happened, and suddenly we had a different cyber problem in the world. Target the stuff was inside, and then we had J.P. Morgan, Home Depot, Anthem, Sony. OPM, on and on and on and on. So I said, wow, if we've got this model and the bad stuff is in your network, wouldn't it make sense to know where and how the bad stuff is moving around? So instead of, like we say, putting a bow on the company and finishing it, I said, let's grow it. And I went to the board, raised some money, and when I joined, we did 17 million, and this year we'll do 50. So uh, that premise that the bad stuff is in your network and you need to deal with it—it's called resilience. It's what modern society does with everything: cars, airplanes, buildings. It's about resilience. We're building resilience into the cyber world, and so far, so good. So that's what it's yeah, all one, about.
1: One of the things I thought was very neat was this resilience score concept. Yeah. So you can you can sort of tell. How resilient you are, and then decide you know, is that good enough for my business or not, kind of thing.
0: That's and exactly right. You got it perfectly.
1: I, I like I like the old adage that you know that that which cannot be measured cannot be improved. Yes. So it's uh, just having any kind of idea what the starting point is.
0: Yeah, a great thing. yeah. It's very it's very true. Uh, McKinsey wrote a book in 2015 called Beyond Cybersecurity, and it was a, a classic McKinsey book. Two thousand companies they surveyed globally boards didn't even know how to spell cyber. Seriously, when I talked to the guy, he said, you know, some people spell cyber with an S, ha, 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 but it's true, but now it's a boardroom issue, right? I mean, look look at the CEOs that have been before Congress in the last year, Equifax, and I mean, it's just, it's a mess, so board, it's a boardroom topic, and if it's a boardroom topic, Tom, Boards understand numbers. Even if they don't understand the business, they understand a number if something's getting better or something's getting worse. So in 2016, when we created this digital resilience score, that was the thesis was, how do you know it's getting better? If I give you $50 million to go improve the network, how do I know it's better? So you base base grade it and look what you did, look at the changes, and then hopefully it went up. And a lot of times, because networks are dynamic, we we degrade them in order to accomplish something, and then we put them back. How do you know you got it back right? And that's been a big deal. I was just um, I, we I was in a discussion this morning about that, and one of our large banking customers is thumping their chest. We use the FICO score from 300 to 850, and their network is now at 800, and they are like, you know, wow. is there anybody better than us? And I go, I, I don't think so, but. It's a new concept. People haven't really grokked it. The U.S. Postmaster, who's a customer of ours, post office, he gets his digital resilience score every morning. He wants to know what the score is, what it was yesterday, and what's what the activities are to make it better. It's a, so you're right. You cannot manage what you do not measure.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to try to drive that all the, all the way into uh, the developers' hands, so that the, so that they know before they release the code what kind of resilience they have because it's. It's still pretty pathetic for a lot of things.
0: You think? Yeah. Don't tell me that.
1: <laughs> well, is I think just this week there was another case of uh, some really important database in Amazon that was totally unsecured. Right. So.
0: Right. Yeah, were, you. You can imagine our product when we when we build this model. That model is the key to your kingdom. I mean, it, I I now know everything good and bad about your network, and I know how to bring you down, how to manipulate you, how to control you. So. We do – we spend a, a disproportionate amount of money on our own security, and we get it tested by third parties, the gray hats, the white hats. We have I don't know if we have black hats testing it, but it's a big deal. And we're uh, – our customers, are every branch of the U.S. government, military, civilian, um, uh, all the intel agencies, and we have 165 corporations that use it. And um, it, if it, my biggest nightmare is that someone corrupts. My product, and then I'm, but I feel pretty good about it today.
1: Did you see this thing uh, where some company went out to hire black hat uh, testers? And after running through HR and whoever published the job ad and all that, it came out as black cat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's appropriate too, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, God, it's probably some AI machine did that. Oh, yeah. um, translating, did.
1: translating to and from Japanese yeah. or something.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, cyber is a big deal. I, you know, Warren Buffett just recently at his annual meeting made the comment that he thought cyber is probably more a risk to human beings than nuclear weapons. When a guy like Buffett is using the word cyber talking to his shareholders and in that kind of context, I, I, that got a lot of people's attention. Yeah. And I think he's right. You know, it's it's three three people in a room in some far off place, or in Kansas, or heck, just down the street here in Sunnyvale, can inflict enormous damage on things. So it's a it's a very disproportionate uh, risk relative to our normal business risk of the house burning down or whatever, airplane crashing with our product in it or whatever. Yeah. And of course,
1: that's become a. A joke area for the Internet of Things as well, where you know,
0: oh, yeah.
1: it's just so bad what people stick in their refrigerators and that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> and how <laughs> uh, many do you have at your house?
1: <laughs> I, yeah, well, I, I try not to buy that kind of stuff. But uh, my, my attitude is if, if there's software in it, you have to manage it. And if you have to
0: manage it, it's work. It's work, yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, at my house, I have 63 IP devices. I have my own network monitoring, and I have a checkpoint firewall that I feel pretty good uh, about. okay. So, so I, I feel like I've managed it. So, but
1: yeah, they say the the S in IoT stands for security.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it's a big deal. And it's getting to be a bigger deal. So, yeah. I you know we could go a lot of places with this cyber. We can go talk about you know national security and federal policy or whatever you want to talk about. I get I I've, I've testified to Congress many times on this subject and other organizations. And then if, if they look at my resume and they see the nuclear, they want to talk about nuclear power and cybersecurity. And that always, oh, yeah. that always yeah. makes for an interesting conversation.
1: It's always good for a scary movie or something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, That's just me, a scary movie.
1: So how's your book doing?
0: Book's doing pretty good, I think. Uh, last time, my last uh, royalty report, about 10,000 had been bought. Wow. Uh, Amazon and Barnes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've gotten a lot of LinkedIn comments about it, and we've reached you know a lot of things. And uh, I don't know, we've had about 10 interviews. I've got a few more booked. I'm giving uh, a really fun one is coming up, the World Affairs Council. There's a national meeting in Washington in November, and I've been asked to give the keynote in the morning about digital resilience and cyber. And that's going to be fun. That's a, that's a big group of people. These are not technical people at all. These are policy wonks and you know bureaucrats and and uh, financial people. So it's I'm going to have to turn it a little bit. I'll tell you one of the really fun things about doing this book was, to my just tremendous surprise, was when Dick Clark, Richard Clark, uh, nation's cyber czar under four presidents, agreed to write the forward. And uh, he's a draw. He's he's a world player, right? Yeah. Uh, he's done things you and I. Wouldn't want to know about, and he's observed things and stuff. But anyway, he wrote this forward, and of course, that—if I just say, you know, this is my book, Digital Resilience, with a forward by Dick Clark—they all get, people like, wow, you know. So it's that's helped a lot yeah. <laughs> to get a lot of people. But he's actually—he's—he's he's appeared with me on stage a number of times, and we're—we're uh, we're pretty good, pretty good team talking about the issues. He talks about it at this level, and I talk about it sort of at the practical level. It's kind of fun. Sorry to wave my hands on Skype. That's probably of no value at all. But <laughs> wave harder. They can't yeah, see okay. you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe they'll see me. Huh? <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: Um, I don't know. We're kind of out of time. Any anything else you want to touch on?
0: Well, I don't know. Um, I think I want to touch on change your passwords. Yeah. Accept dual factor authentication. So, like having a lock for your door. Uh, people always ask me, "What am I? You know, what what do I do? If, if if an email looks fishy, delete it. If they want you, they'll call you on the phone. It works really well. Those are just some tips I always like to give. But uh, it's been uh, it's been fun. I, I, I hope I'm I'm not that old, but I hope I get to see uh, Trialpha make a few. We have an image of hanging the four light bulbs on the generator, which is what they did at the EBR-1 machine back in Idaho when they the first time we ever generated electricity in the United—oh, nuclear power was in uh, 1951 or something like that. And they hung 400-watt light bulbs on the generator and lit them up. There's a famous picture of that. And I'm hoping to duplicate that with fusion.
1: I think, uh, to be trendy, you should go for a fusion-powered Tesla, right?
0: Yeah, Um, that'd be good.
1: You could probably get Elon to donate one for you.
0: <laughs> it's a tough day today.
1: He's more into solar,
0: I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a Tesla, and I do joke about when, you know, right now I get about 20% of my electricity from nuclear, so with the Diablo Canyon, but those days are numbered. So, yeah. anyway, it's good. A lot of problems to solve, a lot of fun to have. And uh, I don't think it's bad to make money while you're solving problems. So,
1: yeah, very cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Been really fun. It's been a really fun talk.
0: Thank you. righty. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. We welcome your feedback. And tell your friends to tune in.